I don't know about you, but I find that faith is one of those words that's very easy to live by and very easy to claim when everything is going your way. And as we've been working through Hebrews chapter 11, we've been reading about these great stories that that many of us are familiar with with the Old Testament. We've been reading about these great events that happened, and each one of them kind of proceeded with the words, by faith this happened, and by faith this person did this. And it's so easy to look at those stories and be like, well, yeah, man, it, it, it would be awesome to have faith enough to watch God part the the Red Sea. It'd be awesome enough to have faith uh, and, and to, to see God do these things and to, to uh, allow these things to happen in your life. And it, I mean, it must have been so easy for some of these people to have faith in those moments when everything was going right. But as we finish up this chapter today, and we're going to be in chapter 11, the last 10 verses of it uh, this morning, we're going to find out that uh, faith is not just there in the good times. Faith is what sustains us and gets us through the hard times as well. And we, we intentionally picked this picture, uh, this image for this morning. And it's here, it's on your bulletin. And I love this picture because it kind of it sums up for me Hebrews chapter 11, especially these last few parts. You see the guy in the front, he is riding that wave. Man, he is, everything is going perfect for him. Everything's going great. And there's times when life is like that. And it's easy to have confidence in God. It's easy to have great moments and, and assurance when everything is going your way, when you are Riding the waves. But if you look just beyond him, life is not going so well for that guy. That's me, by the way. I'm just kidding. That's not me. But that, if I was surfing, that's how I would be. All right? There's times when you're not on top of the waves, the waves are on top of you. There's times when you're not riding them, they are riding you. And, and honestly, instead of you crushing them, they are crushing you. And so what we find in the book of Hebrews is, is in this chapter 11 is these great stories of faith, men who are on top of the waves. But when we finish the chapter, we find some men who got crushed by the waves, and yet by faith, they endured those things as well. And so faith is there not only in the good times, but in the hard times as well. And so if you've got your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and open with me to Hebrews chapter 11. We'll start in verse 30, and we'll read down through verse 40, the end of the chapter. But verse 30 says, By faith the wall of, or walls of Jericho fell down after being encircled by the Israelites for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, received the spies in peace and did not perish with those who were disobedient. What more can I say? Time is short for me to tell, or excuse me, time is too short for me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Japheth, David, Samson, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging of fires, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength. After being weak, became excuse me, became mighty in battle, put their foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead, and they were raised to life again. Some men were tortured, not accepting release, so they could might receive or might gain a better resurrection. And others experienced mocking and scorning, as well as bounds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in half died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskin and goatskin, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All of these were approved through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised, since God has provided something better for us, so that they would not be made perfect without us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for today. God, I thank you for that amazing hymn and song that we just sang of how great is our God. 
And God, I pray this morning that, that we sang that song, maybe because it was the first time we heard it, maybe because it was words on the screen. God, for some of us, that's a song we grew up with. And for some of us, God, there are times in our lives that they were tragic and hard. And it's that song that pulled us through those moments, God. Because in those hard times and tragic times, it was in our life, God, that we realized it wasn't about us. It was about how great our God was. And he pulled us through those difficult times and allowed us to stand even in the midst of the worst storms that we could ever imagine, Father. So, God, I pray that as we sang that song, God, it resonated in our heart. And as we work through this text, God, it resonates in our heart of how great our God is. And, God, even those words are so minute and so unable of really expressing your magnitude and your greatness and your wonderfulness to us, Father. And so, God, I pray this morning that you will speak through your text, God. I pray, God, this morning that we won't just hear stories of the Old Testament. We won't just hear stories of what great people and men and women did of faith, God, that we will be moved to be carried on by the same great God that they were, God. God, that we will have the same faith and assurance and confidence and trust in you that they had in you as well, because it's not about us or what we can or cannot do. It is about the great God that we serve, Father. And so, God, I pray this morning, God, that your Holy Spirit is here, and I pray that you are ready to speak to us as a church and as individuals this morning through your text, and God, and even to our hearts, God. God, so that we walk out of here ready to proclaim and live out the faith both in the good times in the bad times, Father, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Sun Tzu, uh, many of you have probably never heard that name, but he was an ancient Chinese general um, and a brilliant military strategist. And he wrote a book uh, called The Art of War. And in these 13 chapters of this book called The Art of War, he, he, each chapter is devoted to a different set of skills related to warfare. And then uh, each chapter not only has the skills of that warfare, but also kind of practical application. This is when you could use this skill. This is when you could use this strategy. And so this book remains, even to this day, one of the most influential uh, strategy texts for Eastern uh, Asian warfare. And it's even uh, had influence in Eastern and Western military thinking and, and business and legal strategies as well. And in this book, he wrote this line. He said that when your army has crossed the border, you should burn your boats and bridges in order to make it clear to everyone that you have no hankering after home. He says that when you do this, when you, when you burn the boats, when you cross into the enemy territory and you burn the boats and you burn the bridges behind you, it will illustrate to everybody that you have no intentions of retreating, that there's no escape route, there's no fallback position. And when, you're, when your soldiers see this, because he's talking about war, when your soldiers see that you have given this command, when they see these boats burning, it gives them this very clear message. There is only one way to go, and that way is forward. There is no option option of retreating. There is no plan to escape. And he says, when you do that, it will make your men fight harder. It will make your men more confident. It will make them prevail over an enemy, even when the enemy outnumbers them and is stronger than them. You see, when you simply burn the boats, you leave this idea, there is no other option except victory. That it is either victory or death. It is either win or perish. And when you're faced with this option of either winning or perishing, most armies will rise to the occasion and they will strive to win. They will fight harder. They will be more cohesive. And they will not only look to survive, but they will look to succeed in whatever the mission is set in front of them. And, and Alexander the Great... 
He didn't read this book because it was, this book was written well after him. But this is, believe it or not, the military strategy he used uh, when he landed on the shores of Persia in 334 B.C. That when he got there, he knew he was vastly outnumbered. And yet what did he do? He told them to burn the boats because we're not going back home. And, and this is the same strategy that was true of General Cortez when he landed on the shores of Mexico in 1519. And he found that his men, instead of going on to the land and building their settlement, what they did is they would go back to their ships because there was safety in their ships. There was security in their ships. And, and if you got out on the land, you'd have to live uncomfortable. And so we'll just go to the ships. And so one day he ordered everybody off the ship and everybody come to the shore. And then when everybody was off their ship, what did he do? He gave the command to burn those ships. And he told his men, now you have no choice. We will settle this land and we will make our ground here. There is no option for retreat. There is no place for you to go back to, to shrink back to for safety and security. And for many of you that know uh, the group King and Country, this is the story that kind of inspired that song, Burn the Ships. This is the, the story that he had in mind of General Cortez uh, when he wrote it. And, and it's only part of the story because it's really inspired by this addiction uh, to pain medicine that one of their wives was going through. And so if you've heard that song, they talk about flushing the pills. And it's this idea that we are never going back. There is no retreating option. There's no weaning off of these. This is a forward, never going back moment. And there's no way to retreat. There's no way to, to step back. This is an all-in option. And so for Joshua and the people of Israel, they didn't have ships to burn. They didn't have bridges to burn. But they found themselves by faith, in a place of faith, with almost the exact same thing. Because even though there weren't ships to burn, there was not an option a retreat for them. And for some of you may be very familiar with the, the story of Joshua and the people of Israel. They've been wandering uh, for 40 years in the desert. This whole generation had died off. And, and now they were ready into, to enter in the promised land that, that God had been promising them, honestly, for hundreds of years at this time. And, and so they, they had come to the border of it. The only problem was there was this river called the Jordan River that separated them from where God had told them they were supposed to be. And so they, they were trying to figure out, they're like, all right, so how are we going to get to where God has called us to be. And so in most cases, what you would do is you would build ferries or you would build boats or, or you would have somebody get across there and run a string. And, and so you would kind of ferry people back and forth across this river. All right? But the problem is we're not talking about a few people. We're not even talking about just a few thousand people in an army. We're talking about a nation that's been moving around and migrating that's over a million and a half people at this time. And, and so how do you get a million and a half people across a river without bridges? And how do you get them into this place? And so they're trying to figure all this stuff out. And God says, that's all right, Joshua, don't worry about it. I've got a plan. I'm going to show you how to get this million and a half nation, people in this nation across this Jordan River. He says, what I want you to do, Josh, I want you to line everybody up. Get them all in marching formation. Here's the order I want them all in. Put your priests with the Ark of the Covenant, their uh, very religious symbol out front. And put them out front and just start marching towards the river. And when they get to the river, the priest will get in the water. They'll step into the water and then you'll see me do something amazing. And so Joshua, by faith, does this. He gets all the people 
in line and gets them all ready to go. They blow the trumpet. They all get ready, and they're all getting ready to march. The priests are out front, and then the priests step into the water, and all of a sudden the water stops. It separates. And so out of a million and a half people, only four of them, maybe only two of them, are the only ones that got wet because everybody else got to walk across that, that river on dry ground. Water built up on both sides of them is, is God parted this water. And every one of them got across this river completely dry, didn't have to step even in a puddle. They walked across on dry ground. And so then they, they get to the other side of the river and, and the, even the priest who had to stay in the middle of the river while everybody else got through and they get out on the other side and as soon as they step out of the water the river starts flowing again right so i want you to understand that that their option of going back was cut off because they had one way across the river and that was trusting god to get them across the river there were no boats there were no bridges they had nothing to burn behind them and so they've got this huge river that's behind them and, and there's no way of going back across it now, this sounds all right, because what have we done? We've crossed the border. We, we've done a great thing. We're in the promised land. The only problem with being in the promised land is they are living on about this much of the promised land. You see, just a few miles from where they are, there's this huge, fortified, massive city called Jericho. And Jericho has this massive wall. It's, it's, it's huge, and it's massive, and it's very well defended. And so Israel, this million and a half people, have found themselves on this very small strip of land with this massive city in front of them and this river behind them. And they're on this strip of land. They can live here temporarily, but this place is not big enough to suffice for a million and a half people. And so the only option they have is to do what it says, to go forward. And so God tells them, you need to go take that city. You need to overtake that city. And so Joshua's like, well, let me send some spies in there. Let me figure this out. How in the world are we going to take over this city that's so well fortified, so well defended? How are we going to take over this city that, that is so well um, organized and defended? And so even in his book, Art of War, Sun Tzu knew that taking or trying to conquer a walled city was a bad idea. And hundreds of years after this, he wrote that laying siege to a walled city should only be done when no other option is available. He says the armies that lay siege to a city will spend at least six months preparing to breach the wall. They'll spend at least six months trying to get over the wall. And he says, and when you do that, you will lose at least a third of your army in the attempt to get over the wall. And then when the other two-thirds actually get into the wall, they will be so worn out and so exhausted, they cannot defeat the people who live in the army, much less hold the city. And so whatever you do, don't try to take on an armored city. Or a walled up city. Go around it another way. Try diplomacy. Try any other option. But don't go against a walled city. Don't try to take out its walls. It's never going to work. And so this is where faith comes in. Because Joshua and the people of Israel have found themselves with a city that's ready to attack them. And, and ready to fight them on, in front of them. And no place of retreat behind them. And this is where faith comes in because as they're trying to figure out this plan of attack and how do we take this massive city, God says, listen, Joshua, I got you through this river. Let me show you my plan for attack. Your plan for attack is simply this. For six days, you're going to go walk around the walls of that city one time each day. And you're just going to get all of your army, and you're going to walk around the city for one time and then just go back to camp. And the next day, you're going to do the same thing. And you're going to do that for six days. And then on the seventh day, you're going to go around that city seven different times. You're just going to keep circling it. all right? Just keep walking around it and around it and around it and marching it. And don't attack it. Don't fight it. 
Just go march around it. Blow the trumpets and then watch me work. Now, anybody would know this is a crazy idea. This is, this is completely giving your enemy the upper hand. And, and, and one of the major defenses of an armed city is to simply throw rocks down at people. When someone starts coming at your wall, you just drop a big boulder down it. And so they, they're trying to climb a wall or they're there. And so you just crush them with a big rock. And so I want you to imagine if you were walking this, if you're walking around the city, I imagine that the, the, the city's guards are all on the wall and, and you're just walking around it with all these questions like, what, what do we do if they just start throwing rocks at us? What, if they, what do we do if they just start shooting the arrows at us? What do we do if they open the doors and they kind of figured out, hey, this is day four of this thing, and they just keep doing this, and this is crazy. We don't know what they're doing. But what if they open the doors, and what if they come out against us? What if they set this trap for us, and, and like we get on the backside of the city, and they're just ready to attack us there? Or what if they open up, and, and what if they come after us? And, and literally, we have no place of retreat. There's no ships. There's no bridges. We can run back to our camp, but listen, once we get there... What are we going to do? Because they're going to come chasing us. We are at a place that absolutely has no retreat. There's no escape route. There, there's no fallback position. And so this is where faith comes in because faith led them to this place of no retreat. And then verse 30, we see that this is the place they're at. Because verse 30 says that by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after being circled by the Israelites for seven Days. You see, this is one of those moments where faith is the only answer and really the only option. It is one of those moments where you have to demonstrate this full assurance and fully trusting in God. This is one of those moments where God either shows up and you're victorious or it all falls apart. This is one of those moments where there is no middle ground. There's no other option. There is no plan B. There's no backup plan. It's either God is going to show up and do something great for us and through us and with us. Or he's not. And if he doesn't, we're destroyed. Because there is no place of retreat. There is no place of, of backing up. There is no fallback position. And so I want to ask us sitting in this room and us that are watching online, when was the last time you exercised that type of faith? When was the last time that you had so much assurance and so much confidence in this great God that we just sang about that you entered into a place, you followed faith into a place that didn't have a retreat option that didn't have a plan b when was the last time you fully trusted in god so much that you weren't trying to come up with all right so here's what we're going to do but if this doesn't work then we're going to take this route we're going to try this but if this doesn't work then we're going to go back this way and we're going to take these steps forward because we know that if we take these 10 steps forward we can take a few steps back when was the last time you had such great confidence and assurance in this great god that we just sang about that says there are no steps back we are only going forward, and if God doesn't show up and allow us to go forward, then we are destroyed. We are totally helpless without Him. When was the last time you put all your chips on the table? You said 100%, I'm completely confident in Him, that I leave no room for retreat. I leave no room to back out. And if God doesn't show up and take care of the walls in our life, that we have no backup plan and no contingency plan. We are destroyed. And we have enough faith and confidence in this great God that we just sang about that we know He's going to. You see, faith is easy to talk about, but it's hard to live out. You see, the reason the writer of Hebrews includes this example of faith in this passage is because he's writing to a group of people who are not ready to burn the ships. 
He's writing to a group of people who have crossed the border. They put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Him being the way of salvation. They put their faith and trust in Him, except they've got the escape boat ready just in case. What do they do? They keep going to the synagogue. They keep keeping the laws. They keep making sure that they do their sacrifices. And, and yet, we're going to trust Jesus, but just in case... We're going to make sure that we have all these other good works behind us. We're going to make sure that we've done all these sacrifices. We trust Jesus. Yeah, right. Everybody trusts Jesus, right? But we're just going to make sure just in case. And I can share with you there are a lot of people who claim to have faith that are living in this idea to trusting Jesus. You've crossed the border, but you're not ready to burn the ships yet. You've crossed the border and you're trusting Jesus is what you're saying with your mouth, but it's not the life that you're living. And I'm going to be honest with you, this is going to be hard for some of us. Some of us are sitting in church this morning. Some of us are watching online this morning because this is our backup plan. Some of you dropped money into an offering plate this morning. You gave online this morning because that's your backup plan. And you may not have thought about it like that, but here's what you're, you're, you're processing. I trust Jesus. I'm fully confident in Jesus. And I know He's going to get me to heaven. But just in case, I want to make sure that when I get there, I went to church enough, that I, I gave enough money. I just want to make sure that when I get to heaven that, that, and, and I get to those pearly gates that we talk about and St. Peter's there, he looks at all these good things that I've done. I know I've done some bad things, but I just want to make sure that I've done enough good things that, that they outweigh those things. You see, that's not having faith in Christ. That's not trusting in Christ alone, through grace alone, through faith alone. That's not having a, a, a faith in Christ that we cannot boast. You know what that is? That's faith with a backup plan, which really means you don't have faith at all. You see, faith means that we come to a place of zero retreat. And what he's writing to these people and what he's telling us is that when you cross the border... There is no retreat. You either all in fully trusting the assurance and confidence of Jesus Christ that what He did on the cross paid for all of your sins and you don't have to keep making up for Him. You don't have to keep trying to back Him up. You are either all fully trusting in His sufficient cross or you're not. By faith, we come to the place of no retreat. By faith, we come to a place where we fully have assurance and confidence in the cross of Jesus Christ or we don't. And I'm sure you this morning, there are people maybe sitting in this room, maybe watching online. I know there are people around the world who say, yeah, I'm fully trusting in Jesus Christ, but they've got the backup boats there just in case. And I want to share with you, if you've got a retreat plan, if you're coming up with a backup plan to get into heaven, then maybe you're not trusting in Christ as much as you think you are. In fact, you're not trusting in Christ. You see, faith requires an assurance and a confidence in God, not in ourselves. It requires this assurance and this trusting that He will take care of the walls and He will be the one who gets us into the building. And, and, and for us, it means that we come to this place where we trust Him to take care of the walls and we quit building the ladders. We quit trying to climb the ladders. And we quit coming up with other plans. And we quit coming up with all these other things. And we just trust Him. You see, faith brings us to these places where there is no retreat. Faith depends less on us and more on Him. And when we start to realize that, then we start to realize that faith allows us to overcome our excuses because our assurance in Him is in Him and His abilities and His truthfulness, not in us and not in our abilities. You see, that song we just sang of how great is our God doesn't say anything about how terrible or good we are. It is fully in the assurance of Him. The fact that we look at these last few people mentioned in the Hall of Fame of Faith, we find that many of them are just like us. In fact, they're all like us. 
They are all flawed failures. They, they are all people who have these flaws and a good number of reasons why God would use anybody except them to accomplish the things that he does. And so he starts, we want to look in verse 31. It's kind of this first example. And we're reminded in verse 31 of this lady named Rahab who, who honestly has this, not a questionable, just a, a disgraceful profession in the world's eyes in, in her past. And so verse 31 says, By faith Rahab the prostitute received the spies in peace and did not perish with those who disobeyed. And in most people's eyes, her profession alone would have been enough to disqualify her. How in the world does somebody who does that wind up on a list with all of these great men and women of faith? How does somebody with a profession like that wind up in this hall of fame of faith? And, and you take the whole Old Testament, you condense it down to one chapter, and you just mention the best of the best. How does she make this list, that profession alone? How in the world would God ever use someone like that? And see, if it wasn't her profession, then her pedigree probably was a problem for some of us. You see, she's not a member of Abraham's family. She's not part of the Jewish nation. She was not one of the ones that, that God had counted when, Ab- when he told Abraham, you're going to have descendants as far as the skies or the stars in the skies. She wasn't one of them. She has no blood relation to Abraham whatsoever. And so every other Jew in that time, and even to this day, many of them will trace their family line all the way back to David or all the way back to Abraham. They will know which tribe they belong to. And she doesn't have any of that. She doesn't come from the right family. She doesn't have the right background. She doesn't have the right lineage to be used by God. And if her, if her, her profession was enough and her pedigree was enough, then her position surely would disqualify her. You see, she didn't cross the Jordan River. She wasn't with the nation of Israel. Instead, she is living in the city of Jericho. She's living in this city that is honestly filled with pagan gods and honestly prides itself on this worship mainly of the moon god and the, the gods and goddesses of fertility. And so this is she is completely surrounded by all of these other gods. In fact, she's not with the nation of enemy or Israel. She is the enemy of the nation of Israel. She is one of the ones who God said, go in that, in that land and destroy everything there. And so her position would disqualify her. Rahab could have done all of this. She could have seen all of this as a problem. But you see, Rahab, she didn't worship any of those gods. Instead, she knew the one true God. She knew the God of Israel. She knew the God that could deliver people from bondage. She knew the God that could split the Red Sea and the Jordan River. She knew the God that remained faithful to his promise to bring people into a land hundreds of years after he made the promise. And she knew that if that was the God that was big enough for all that, then surely none of her excuses were good enough for him. She knew that the God of Israel could be trusted. And the God of Israel, she could have enough faith in him so that even her very family could be saved. And so Rahab could have had all these excuses. She could have resisted. She could have had a profession that people looked at her and said, no, no, there's no way God could do. In fact, she herself could have said, no, no. God, do you know what I do for a living? God, do you know how I feed my family? God, there's no way that you could use anybody like me, as sinful as I am. She could have used her pedigree as an excuse in her background and said, God, there's, there's no way you could use a background like mine. Surely that, that you can use somebody from a better family. Surely you could use somebody with a better education. Surely that, that there's somebody with a better history. Surely that there's, you could use them to make a difference in the world. God, surely her position would have been an excuse for her not to be used by God. God, surely... I don't know enough about the Bible 
to be used by you. Surely, I, God, I don't even have a Bible. I'm surrounded in the city by all these other false gods. And yeah, I've heard a few stories. I don't have a Bible. I don't know anything about the Bible. In fact, the only Bible is coming across the Jordan River right now. And, and I don't hold it. I don't know it. I, I've heard a few stories that are going to be written in that Bible and have been written in that Bible. And, and so, God, there's no way you could use somebody who knows so little about you as me. There's no way, God, that you could use me. Look at who I am. Look at where I came from. God, look how little I know. Surely you've got to use somebody else. And she's not alone. If we look at verse 32, there are several other men listed in verse 32 that have these sketchy, flawed backgrounds and characters. And when we read verse 32... We find men who are mentioned who we look up to, and these are heroes in faith. In verse 32, it says, What more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Japheth and David and Samuel and the prophets. And i gotta love, I got to tell you this part. I love this passage of Scripture. I love this verse right here because this is where the writer of Hebrews and me gets along so great. Because I imagine the writer of Hebrews and me, we kind of plan things out the same way. Like, we've got this idea that we're going to tell all of these great stories, and we're going to have all this time, and then we start writing them down, and we start to realize that we're running out of time, and we're running out of paper, and so then we just kind of condense all the last stuff into one little bottle package. And so some of you pick on me, because you get to point A and point B in your sermon outline, or one and two, and you've got all this stuff, and then like you get to three and four, and it's this big. All right? So I'm going to let you in on a secret. You ready? We're not even going to get to point four today. We're going to combine it with point three. Why? Because I'm out of time to do those, all right? So he, he gets to this part, and I love it, because he's telling all of these stories about all these great people, and by faith Abraham, by faith Sarah, by faith all these people. And then he, the time is too short for me to tell you all of these great stories. So he takes all of these last men, and he, instead of going individually with them, he kind of lumps them all together, which is exactly what I'm going to do with these last two points when we get to them. And, and so we read this list, and as you read through this list, some of them you will remember as a kid. Some of you remember the story of some of these people that you read about. Some of you remember the story of Gideon and how great of an army Gideon was and, and how great of a commander in the army was. Gideon was the guy that, that took this little bitty army. He started with a big army and God said, no, that's too big. Put them down. Take some of them away. Send some of them home. And so he did. And he's like, no, that's still too many. Take, take just a few of them. And so really it's this commando force, this small little bitty army, and he wipes out this massive army of the enemy. That's the story of Gideon that most of us remember, how he took this tiny little unit, this tiny little fraction of an army, and he defeated this massive army of the enemy. And everybody's, "Woo! Gideon's awesome. I want to be so much like Gideon. You see, but that's not the introduction of the story of Gideon. He doesn't start as a mighty... Uh, warrior on the battlefield. In fact, when we're introduced to Gideon in chapter 6 of Judges, he's not a soldier at all. In fact, when we first read about him, we're not going to read his whole story, but in, in Judges chapter 6, I think I said Genesis, but in Judges chapter 6, when you first read about him, he's hiding in a cave. He's tucked away in a cave and he's using the wine press to thresh his wheat out. Instead of going out in public where they usually thresh the wheat and mash the wheat and make it, or make it where they can use it, he's trying to do it in a wine press because he's too scared of the enemy to go out in public. He's too afraid that, that the enemy's going to come and defeat him or the enemy's going to come and steal his stuff. And so he's tucked away, he's hiding away in this cave and he's, he's trying to use what tools he has because honestly he's too much of a coward to go out into the real world, too much of a coward to go out and public and all of a sudden in verse 2 this angel of the Lord shows up to him in verse 2 he calls Gideon this phrase 
he says that you are a mighty man of valor. You are this brave man. Now, he's hiding in a cave because he's too afraid to go out in public. He's hiding and afraid. He's hiding in this cave trying to do all this stuff. And then he responds to this angel who just called him brave and courageous and all this stuff. And he responds to him in verse 13 uh, by saying this, that Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened? Why are all the wonders, or where are all the wonders that our fathers told us about? He said, hasn't the God brought us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us, and he has handed us over to Midian. You see, come on, man, are you kidding me? You're calling me this mighty man of value. You're filling me up with all this great stuff. And God's not even on our side anymore. Yeah, we heard those stories. That's, that's all past. Yeah, God brought us here, and now he's abandoned us. He doesn't even want to be with us anymore. So here's my point. That sometimes we read these stories or we read about these men that are listed in verse 32. And all we remember is the conquest. All we remember is the victory. But we forget that these are flawed characters. We forget the fact that, that before Gideon took on this small or massive army with this tiny army, he was a coward and a doubter. That he thought God had completely abandoned him and the nation of Israel. Barak was the same way. He refused to go into battle unless Deborah went with him. Samson and David were both adulterers and they gave themselves over to love and they were both completely selfish people. Japheth was arrogant and prideful. Samuel had children that were completely disobedient and corrupt and he refused to correct them or to confront them and fix the problem. And yet, what does God do with flawed people? What does God do with all these characters that, that suddenly went from heroes to, are you kidding me, that's who these people are? Because when we read verse 32, we think of these ideas of heroes, but when we read their stories, we find out that they're really flawed characters. They really are broken people, just like all of us. And I want you to see what God does with them in verse 33 and verse 34, because He overcomes all of their excuses. And starting in verse 33, we see how He takes a coward and a selfish man and a prideful man and one who fails to be the head of his household in verse 33, he says, who by faith conquered kings and ministered justice, obtained promises and shut the mouths of lions. Going on in verse 34, he quenched the ragings of fires, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength after being weak, became mighty in battle and put foreign armies to flight. Now I'm going to be honest with you, those two verses, they don't just describe the actions of the men in verse 32. They describe many of the actions uh, in the rest of the Old Testament, men and women who didn't let their past stand in the way. Men and women who had faults and failures and flaws, and yet men and women who let their faith overcome their excuses. You see, I'm convinced that there are men and women sitting in this room that God wants to use in a mighty way. I'm convinced that some of you that watch online every single week, God wants to use you in an amazing, mighty way. And maybe there are some of you that God wants to use to, to gain strength after you've been weak. There are some of you that maybe God wants to become a mighty spiritual warrior and do great things for His kingdom. There, there are some of you that, that God wants to fulfill these things that He did in the Old Testament. He's the same God. He's the same great God that we sing about. He didn't change. But the problem is that some of us aren't going to do those things because we're so full of excuses. That surely God would use anybody but me. We, we, we don't say it, but surely, surely God would use somebody that knows enough about the Bible. Surely God would know somebody who can answer somebody's questions. Surely, surely God would use somebody who's been to church or part of a church longer than I have. Uh, surely he's, He would use somebody who's been raised, raised in church God, you, you know my family, and you know my family issues, and, and you know how crazy they are and how corrupt my family is, and, and I'm working on them, God, but, 
God, surely you'd use somebody who's got a better background than I do. You see, and, and we, we begin to look at all these excuses instead of the object of our faith. And I think the real lesson for us this morning is to let your faith overcome your excuses, to stop looking for reasons why God cannot use you and should not use you, and start looking to the ways that God wants to use you. Start believing that if God is mighty enough to use a prostitute and adulterers and cowards, and He's, he's mighty enough to use them that He's mighty enough to use you too. That all, after all, our faith is not in our abilities, that none of these men and women conquered these things. None of them did things because of themselves. They did it because they had faith in a God who kept His promises. That, that we have faith not in our abilities, but in Him. That we have faith that if He can turn a coward into a mighty man of valor, then He can make us the same way. That if He can turn a selfish adulterer into someone who sacrifices himself for the good of the nation and willingly dies for that nation, then what could He do with us. If he could take somebody who refused to discipline his own kids and refused to uh, um, deal with the corruption in his own family and use him to anoint and advise the kings of the nations, then what could he do with us? You see, for some of us, we need to stop looking at our excuses and reasons why God can't use us and start trusting in the God who is great. Start trusting in the God who can overcome all of these things, overcome our fears, our backgrounds, our, our positions, our pedigrees, all of these excuses that we have are nothing for a God who is as great as we say that He is. You see, what we really have to do is simply come to God and overcome our fears and excuses and say, God, here I am. God, I am broken. And I am messed up. And I'm confused and I'm ill-equipped and I'm awkward and I'm untrained, but I'm just like everybody else in this chapter. And I'm here to be used by you in a way that only you can use me. You see, that's what we need to be praying God, I am broken, I am messed up, I am confused, I am untrained, but I'm just like everybody else in this chapter. In fact, I'm just like every other flawed person you've used throughout the history of this universe that you made, and yet here I am, God, use me. But i got to give you a warning. If you're going to pray that prayer, you better be ready for it, because that's not going to just change your day. That's going to change your life and maybe the trajectory of your life forever. And so I want to give you this warning. Be careful what you pray for. Because when you pray to be used by God in a way that only He can use you, then you might just get it. But I've got to share with you that it doesn't always come with roses and blessings like we predict it to be. You see, sometimes faith is not a guarantee of victory or success as the world defines it. You see, faith really sometimes is the tool we use to endure the worst. And so when we pray that God will use us in a way that only He can, we've got to be ready that sometimes the way He uses us is through hard and difficult times. You see, there's this whole group of people that get really excited about Hebrews chapter 11. They, they start reading Hebrews chapter 11. They start hearing all these stories that by faith this person did that, and by faith they conquered this city, and by faith. And they start reading all of these stories in through verse 11, or down through chapter 11, and they get really excited about all these things that are possible through faith. And it's led to what we call the faith movement, or some of you may be familiar with the word of faith movement. Uh, and it's this movement that has this theology, and, and honestly it's ransacked the idea of faith. Let me tell you what this theology says, that Christians can access the power of faith through speech. And therefore, we as Christians can access complete physical, emotional, financial, relational, relational, and spiritual healing for those who simply have enough faith to speak and see those things happen. You see, I tell that to you, and we don't hear a lot about the Word of Faith movement or the faith movement, but we hear it because it shows up in two forms, and we see it practiced in two forms. One of them is this thing called the prosperity gospel. 
And the prosperity gospel works like this. That if you simply, because God wants you to financially be rich, and that's what they would tell you, that God wants to bless you financially, then you just simply have to have enough faith to claim what God has promised you. And so I'm not going to lie to you. This is, this is practically how this works. And so God has wants you to be rich. He's blessed. He's promised you to be rich. And so if God wants you to have a certain car and you want that certain car, then your job is to have enough faith to go to the dealership pray over that car, walk around that car like the walls of Jericho, speak in the name of Jesus, and God will give you that car. All right? And I, we, we kind of joke about that, and for us that seems kind of odd, but i got to share with you, that's reality for a lot of folks. There are a lot of folks that live this reality, and for some folks it's not a car, it's a house. And they have, I have honestly seen it with my own eyes that people will go to a house and they'll walk around praying at this house that God will give them this house. This is the house. This is, this is what we're looking for. And this is what we want. And God's going to give it to us. And so then they just keep praying it and they just call out His name. And so it's not a car. It's a house. Maybe it's a piece of land or, or some physical or financial blessing. And if you just have enough faith, that's all it takes. Just name it and claim it. That God wants to give it to you, and so you name it, and then you claim it, and you just have enough faith to watch God give it to you. That's the prosperity gospel, all right? That's the result of people who read the first part of chapter 11. That's the result of people in this this faith movement. But the other way we see it presented is this idea or this area of physical healing. And for these folks that buy into this idea that, that if someone has enough faith, or maybe even sufficient amount of faith, maybe not enough, but sufficient amount, this same name it and claim it idea applies to physical health. That either the faith of the person who's sick or the faith of the people who are praying for that person can guarantee the production of complete healing. Now, I want you to notice, I said a guarantee of physical healing. Not a possibility, but a guarantee. And don't hear me say that I don't think God can work miracles. Don't hear me say that I don't think God does amazing things and can heal people because I know He can because we have a church member who four months ago was written off as dead and she wasn't going to make it out of the hospital and she's sitting at home right now. After being through two, three, no, four hospitals, three different doctors writing her off and saying she's never going to make it, she's never going to live, and now she's sitting at home probably watching us right now online. Trust me, God can do miracles, but let me tell you this. It's not dependent on my faith to make God move. But what these folks will tell you is simply this, that if you have enough faith, you are guaranteed complete physical healing. You are guaranteed that, that you will produce this, this healing. And so what you'll hear them say is things like Isaiah. They'll say that by His stripes we are healed. And so we claim this healing. We rebuke this sickness or this cancer and, and whatever the situation is, faith. And then by faith, this person is guaranteed to be healed. And then if, if it doesn't happen... It's simply because the person or the people praying for them just didn't have the faith that it took to make it happen. You see, unfortunately, I share this with you because this is a movement that has become very popular. In fact, a couple weeks ago, I was walking through a, a bookstore, and, and I, I just went to the, the Christian um, uh, the Christian book section. In fact, it, it was a it wasn't a Christian bookstore at all. It was a, it was just a regular bookstore, and I don't think they even called it the Christian section. I think it was just self-help or religious section. And as I looked at the top new self-help or Christian books, the top selling best new Christian books, nine out of ten of them were this kind of message. 
Nine out of ten of them shared from this faith, word of faith movement, this prosperity gospel. Nine out of ten of them had this flawed view of faith that was put out there. And I call it a flawed view of faith because these people that get so excited, and I love the first part of chapter 11, I really do, but these people that get so excited about the first part of chapter 11, they, they, maybe they just got so excited they forgot to read the bottom part of chapter 11. Because when we get to the bottom part of chapter 11, these last few verses, verses 35 through 37, we find out real quick that there is no guarantee of faith. And there's no guarantee of healing or blessing. I want you to look with me in verse 35. The end of verse 35, the first part actually goes with 34. But the end of verse 35 says that some men were tortured, not accepting release, so that they might gain a better resurrection. And going on in verse 36 and verse 37, verse 36 says, And others experienced mocking and scorning, as well as bonds, an imprisonment. Verse 37, they were stoned. They were sawed in half. They died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskin and goatskin and destitute and afflictions and mistreated. And they were mistreated. I don't know about you, but when I read that, that's a far cry from some of the prosperity gospel preachers that I see today. That's a far cry from the prosperity gospel preachers that are living in multi-million dollar mansions and carrying around gold-plated microphones and flying around in private jets. That's a far cry from complete physical and financial and relational healing to me. You see, these people that get so excited about the first part, forget these last part of the verses. You see, what the word of life prophecy and what the, this idea would tell you and the prosperity gospel would tell you is the reason they were mocked and imprisoned and stoned and died by the sword was a problem with their faith. Maybe, maybe these men didn't have enough faith to claim the victory. Maybe they didn't have enough faith to name it and claim it. And maybe they just didn't have enough faith to see the financial blessing or the physical deliverance that God had. And, and so there was this, this lack of faith for some reason on their part. And you could buy into that until you finish the story. And the story goes on in verse 39. And in the story, that verse starts with this. That all of these, get this, not the first part of chapter 11. All of these were approved through faith. You see, faith or the lack of faith was not the issue because God Himself approves of all of these. He approves of the one who shuts the mouth of the lion and He approves the one who was sawed in half. He approves the one who conquered the nations and He approves the one who wandered around in the wilderness. He approved the ones who, who, who defeated the nations and, and, and ministered justice and He approves the ones who are roaming around and, and being tortured and, and mocked all the time. You see, faith was not the problem. They, they clearly didn't have a lack of faith. God approved their faith and yet they still suffered. They still died. You see, sometimes instead of deliverance and blessing, faith produces endurance and it brings us to places of suffering sometimes instead of faith removing you from a bad situation it gives you the strength to stand and withstand in a bad situation you see you would go back to this picture sometimes faith lets you ride on the waves and sometimes faith lets you get up after the waves has crushed you over and over and over again and can I tell you, the pages of Scripture and the pages of history are filled with people who by faith were not delivered from suffering or death, but they had faith to endure it. They had faith that, that, uh, that they knew this is not where our best life is. They had faith not in the things of this world, but in a better world to come, in the better resurrection. They had faith that, as they said in verse 40, that God has provided something better for us. You see, faith is not measured by what we see in this world. It's measured by the things that we do not see in this world. The unthing, unseen things that are around us and the unseen things that are, are, are waiting for us. Faith, going back all the way to the beginning. And so this is what I love to do with Scripture. We're at the end of chapter 11 with faith enduring these hard things. Why? 
Because at the beginning of chapter 11, faith is the reality. It's the assurance. It's the confidence of what is hoped for. And I can tell you that what I'm hoping for is not in this world. What I'm hoping for is honestly not to be rich and not to have people shout my name. And what I'm hoping for is not to live this world forever. Why? Because faith is the hope for, the, the assurance and the confidence of things we hope for. And i got to be honest with you. If this is all there is, I'm highly disappointed in the great God that we serve. Why? Because hope or faith is the reality of what is hoped for. And our hope doesn't lie in this world. It doesn't lie in what this world has to offer. Faith is in a better sanctuary, in a heavenly place. Faith is a place that, that He has gone to prepare for us. Faith is seen in the, not in this world, but in things that we don't see. And so faith is the reality of what is hoped for. It's the assurance of things unseen. You see, we don't live by faith in this world so that we can get the blessings of this world. We live by faith in this world so we get the blessings in the world beyond us. Faith allows us to endure the hard times and the worst times because the best of times are yet to come. And I don't care what the author of the, of the gospel or the prosperity excuse me, gospel tells you, this is not your best life. It will not be your best life. And if you are counting on this being your best life, then you don't know the same great God I have. Because you haven't crossed the border and you're not ready to burn your ships and fully trust in the one who went ahead of you to prepare a place for you into a better sanctuary. Your best life will be when you get to spend an eternity with a Savior who walked in this earth and died on the cross for you so that you can have an assurance and a confidence in Him that there is nothing that He cannot conquer just as He conquered the grave. You see, our best life is when I get to spend every day, every moment in the presence of the one who loved me enough to die for me, even when I was as bad as a prostitute and a failure and a coward and a flawed adulterer. And yet he loved me enough to come and die for me. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the, the reality of things unseen. Let's pray together.